0: Guys, it's been a long series. The 13th week of our summer series called The Answer, where we are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians all summer long. And we've only got a few weeks left in this series. For me, it's been one of my favorite series we've ever done here at the Father's house. I hope it's been a blessing to you and you've learned some stuff, not just about an ancient culture, but about yourself and about our current culture as we've been going through this. But uh, if you're here today for the first time, let me catch you up to speed and tell you why we're studying this book. Uh, If you were to do a, a bit of a history search on ancient... Corinth, you would discover rather quickly that there are quite a few similarities between ancient Corinth and our modern city called San Francisco. Uh, For an exhaustive list of those similarities, check some of the earlier sermons uh, in this series, but the brief version would be this. Uh, Corinth was a port city like us, a transient place where people were constantly coming and going, and it was widely recognized within the Roman Empire as a place of great wealth and great influence, influence that spanned far beyond its borders. Uh, But in addition to its reputation. Of wealth and influence, it was also recognized as a very sexually progressive city and a sinfully indulgent city where people could do whatever they wanted to do, be whomever they wanted to be, indulge in whatever they wanted to indulge in, and not just be tolerated, uh, but to be celebrated as a result of that. And yet, like us, the Apostle Paul felt that this dark city was the perfect place to plant a life-giving church because he believed that the light of the gospel shines brightest in the darkest of places, and so he plants this church in the middle of a dark city and hundreds of people start to get saved, like us. People are getting baptized every week and added to the community of God and this church begins to grow rather rapidly. In fact, it grows so quickly that after about a year and a half, the apostle Paul feels it's strong enough to leave in capable hands and he continues on in his missionary endeavors to plant other churches throughout Syria. But shortly after his departure, he gets some frantic letters from these new Christians who are discovering that it's quite a bit more difficult than they anticipated to live for Christ in this wicked Corinthian culture. In fact, they tell Paul that many of the Corinthian ways, the wicked ways of their culture, are beginning to permeate the church. And so Paul, he responds back with a letter, a letter that we now know as the book of 1 Corinthians, where he addresses each of these issues one by one, and with every single problem he displays for them how the gospel of Jesus Christ provides An Answer, hence the title of the series, The Answer. And and since our cities are so similar, every week we have taken a chapter from this book, we have contextualized the problems within that chapter, and we've discovered every week how the gospel still works today. It still provides answers for the problems that we face even in our modern city called San Francisco. And and since today is the 13th week, that means we're going to chapter 13 in the book. But as we do that, um, we need to hearken back for a moment to the chapter that we discussed discussed last weekend because it is impossible to apply everything that we're going to read today without that context. And by we discussed, I mean our very own David Escobedo preached about last weekend. And it was awesome. If you were not here, please, 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 let me appeal to you. Go back, listen to the podcast, check out the YouTube. I love that we got great communicators that are not me, or my wife, or you got some beautiful communicators around here that just know how to articulate the word of God so perfectly, and David crushed it. Uh, It was all about the gifts, and we talked about how everybody in the room has a gift. He pulled out his Oprah, you got a gift, and you got a gift, and you got a gift. Uh, and that God has given us those gifts for a purpose. They're, they're to be used in service to one another, in sync with the body, and in surrender to Christ. Uh, and, and so if you didn't catch that, please go back. But let me just make one more appeal to you use your gifts. <laughs> Our church needs everybody operating in the gifts that God has entrusted to them. God's called us to do some big things in this city. He's called his bride, all the churches, to do great things in this city. But it means that everyone's got to be in the right place at the right time, doing what God has gifted them to do. So discover those things and lean into them. Uh, But in light of that, let's look at what Paul says at the conclusion of uh, chapter 12 before we get into 13 so it tees us up for all we're going to lean into today. Uh, He says this in the last verse. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you the most excellent way. You should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. Let me show you the most excellent way. So so Paul concludes chapter 12 by saying none of us should be content to just sit in church and consume. Church is not a consumer sport. It's something we're supposed to be contributing to we should all eagerly desire what he calls the most helpful gifts. And what are the most helpful gifts? Whatever gifts which awakened in this community serves the community best. So so look around at the needs and determine what are the gifts that God needs to awaken within this community so that it can do what God has called it to do. But then as we prepare for uh, using these gifts, first Paul taps into his inner Bill and Ted, and he says, let me show you the most excellent way to do that. Some of you don't understand that reference, and I pity you this morning because it was a great movie back in the 90s. So now that he's teed up chapter 13, let us find out how we can be most excellent to each other, all right? (laughs) I'm speaking your surfer language, bro, there we go. Put me out there on the waves. All right, 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse one. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then here comes perhaps the part many of us are familiar with love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it endures through every circumstance. Prophecy, speaking in unknown languages, special knowledge, all of that stuff will eventually become useless, but love will last forever. It will last into eternity. So, so obviously what Paul's doing here in leaning out of chapter 12 into 13 is he's ensuring that as we begin to pursue these gifts, we maintain the right motive. And he says our motive cannot be to uh, appeal to God or uh, appease some religious obligation. It can't be to try to find our way onto a platform or pay penance for some of the stuff we've done that's wrong. Our, our motive must be this word. It must be love. Love. And lest we attempt to define that word for ourselves... Paul provides what has become scripture's most comprehensive and beautiful definition for what true love looks like here in 1 Corinthians 13. And for the remainder of our time together, we're gonna, we're gonna unpack this beautiful definition of love. But before that, I wanna pray, and I wanna give you a title. And uh, in light of the content uh, this morning, there was a lot of titles to choose from, no, 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 uh, no absence of them. I considered going the movie route and calling it Love Actually, because uh, you know this is actually the definition of love. Uh, But then I tapped into my my love of older music, almost went with the Beatles. All you need is love. Okay, some of you know that. For some of the uh, younger folks, I was going to go foreigner. I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. Yeah, but I didn't go any of those routes. Instead, I wanted to tap into what I believe was the heart and the intention behind the Apostle Paul here this morning, in writing this definition, what he was attempting to convey behind these words, and so instead, I want to call this chat: "Look beyond the mirror. Look beyond the mirror." Let, let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Oh God, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for uh, what you're doing in your church in San Francisco. Thank you, Father, for this testimony, this baptism this morning of someone being rescued behind prison doors and. It's literally who you said you'd be in in the book of Isaiah. You'd be those who who rescue the captives and break open prison doors. Thank you for what you're doing. And Father, now as we go to your word and we study it once again this morning, I thank you that these 2,000-year-old letters have been preserved for us to be inspired by the Holy Spirit and transformed before we leave this place. Speak to us today in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen, amen. So I said a moment ago that, This is probably a familiar portion of scripture to many of us in the room. And the reason it's familiar isn't necessarily because you've studied it before, because you've heard pastors preach on it before. The reason it's familiar is because most of us have probably heard this in a wedding ceremony before. How many ever heard 1 Corinthians 13? Okay, most of us in the room have heard it. Generally, uh, it is placed by the officiant in the part of the ceremony before the vows where the bride and the groom, they look longingly into each other's eyes, and they lie about all the things they're going to do for the next 50 or 60 years of their life. Right, you know what I'm talking about. It's that moment like, I'm gonna rub your shoulders every night. I'm gonna laugh at all your jokes as long as we live. If you're sick, I'm gonna cuddle you and I'm gonna make you chicken noodle soup. And then all of us who've been married for a decade or two and more were like, nope. That's not how that works. You might get a shoulder rub on your birthday, but more than likely you'll get a gift card for someone else to do it for you. Your jokes used to be funny, but now they're just annoying. Come on, I'm just being honest, right? And if you're sick, go sleep on the couch. I'm not cuddling you. And if you keep coughing like that, put on a mask for the love of God. It's a COVID era, all right? Come on. Nobody needs that. This is how vows work. I'm just, you know, being honest today. But those empty promises, they, they arise to a whole new level when you include 1 Corinthians 13 in, in the vows. And I don't mean to offend anybody today who used that in your wedding ceremony. I applaud your willingness to use the eternal canon of Scripture. But let's be real for a moment. That is a pretty lofty list of standards to adhere to, right? Like, like just let's consider this for a moment. We've got a, a graphic for you today. The, these are the things that, that 1 Corinthians says love is. I don't even make it past the first one. (laughs) Love is patient. Whoops. (laughs) Come on. You patient with your spouse all the time? You patient when you're ready and they're not ready and it seems to be taking them a little bit longer to get ready than it's taking you to get ready? You patient when you've asked them 15 times to close the cupboard doors or to put that stuff away and they haven't done it yet? You patient when they're driving the wrong direction but don't want directions? Are, are you patient with one? <laughs> and you're awing because it's true, right? Or uh, let's skip down. How about a keeps no record of wrongs? you gonna tell me you've never tucked one of your partner's wrongs into your back pocket just to use it, the most opportune time in the middle of an argument or a counseling session where you drop those famous words. Well, what about when you, right? Okay, true story. Robin's not here so I can tell this. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were in the middle of a a passionate conversation with one another, and we've been married for a long time, 19 years, it'll be 20 years next year. Uh, And apparently for the last 19 years, Robin has been nursing bitterness about something I do that I didn't even know about, all right? So we're in the middle of this passionate conversation. She starts telling me how much she hates the fact, and this is petty by the way, that I leave, the nozzle on the dish soap pointed the wrong direction after I wash all of our dishes, all right? So it's pointed towards the wall instead of, uh, instead of pointed over the sink, which is where she wants it. And I'm like, really? This is what we're arguing about right now. And I may or may not have in the middle of that conversation shared with her, well, maybe I'd have margin to remember which direction to leave the nozzle if you did not use every single dish in our kitchen to make dinner for us, as if you wanted to just punish me while I do the dishes afterwards, but... Just venting today as I can. (laughs) Clearly we are keeping score, a record of each other's wrongs. But all jokes aside, let's look at some of the other things in this list. Love always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It endures in every circumstance. It never fails. Obviously, that's not the case. If it were, we wouldn't have people in the room today that find themselves wounded or broken or betrayed or separated or divorced. Why? Because someone violated those standards of love. I, I think if we are honest, every single one of us would say we have both perpetrated and experienced a violation of First Corinthians chapter 13. None of us have been able to live up to or experience perfectly these standards in another human relationship. And yet here it sits in the eternal canon of Scripture as if to, to taunt us, to elude us, some impossible standard to live up to. But if I'm honest, I don't think that is why the Spirit of God compelled the Apostle Paul to pen these words to the church in Corinth. I don't think God put this in the Bible for us to read so that he could dangle a carrot that would be impossible for us to reach, making us feel guilty and ashamed, like we'll never measure up to the standard of love that he's put before us. Rather, I think the reason these words have been captured in the scriptures is for the very title of our message today. It is to inspire all of us to look beyond the mirror. Uh, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I've brought with me a mirror today. I had to buy it. I don't use a mirror. I'm not that vain. I just get dressed in the morning, and whatever happens, happens. <laughs> it's not true. But, hey, how you doing? <laughs> See? You. <laughs> the Bible tells us in the book of James that part of the function of Scripture is to serve as a mirror. Every time we read and we study the Bible, it's like staring at ourselves in a mirror. It gives us a reflection. It shows us our condition. I like to say it like this. You cannot read the Bible without the Bible reading you at the same time. It's impossible. You will see yourself in the scriptures. It will reveal the broken state of your humanity. And this has probably happened to all of us before. As you read through the scriptures, you begin to recognize areas or deficits in your life. Maybe you're reading along and you suddenly begin to read a scripture about the holiness of God and the standard of holiness that he calls us to live by. As we studied at the very first chapter in this book, Paul says that God has called us to live holy lives, set apart, different from the culture around us. 1 Peter chapter four, he says, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. But as you stare into that mirror of scripture, you begin to recognize areas of your life where you've fallen short of that standard. Areas where you've conformed to the culture or where you've compromised and lived with impurity and you begin to see an accurate reflection of who you truly are. Or maybe you're reading along in, in Philippians chapter four and, and you read that scripture where it says, be anxious about nothing, but instead pray about everything. Thank God for what he's done. Tell him what you need and then the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But as you look into that mirror, you recognize, man, I don't have the peace that this scripture's talking about. My mind is constantly running and I'm, I'm anxious and it's probably because not only have I not prayed about everything, sometimes I haven't prayed about anything. And I've invested all my emotional energy on worrying about things that might happen tomorrow, borrowing trouble from tomorrow, but living in it today. Or you read on in Philippians 4, and it says, whatever is pure, whatever is good, whatever is noble, dwell on these things. But as you look into that mirror, you realize, man, I've been dwelling on some stuff I shouldn't be dwelling on. My thoughts have been impure, and selfish motives have, have, have governed my mind. And the more you look at the Scriptures, the more you see about yourself. The more you gaze into that mirror, the more you become aware of your broken, your frail, your fallen condition. But, but unlike this natural mirror, the scriptures are never supposed to inspire us to feel ashamed of what we see and then try to, by some feeble attempt, clean ourselves up or make ourselves look better, paint ourselves with the makeup and dress differently so that we can somehow be accepted by God. That might be the, the aim of dead religion and the motive of dead religion, but that is not the heart of God. God's heart, when we stare into this mirror called Scripture, is that upon seeing ourselves and recognizing the frailty of our humanity, we would stop looking at the reflection and we would look beyond the mirror at the only one who can make us holy, the only one who can make us pure, the only one who can make us righteous, that we would see Jesus. As it says in Isaiah chapter 1, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you white as snow. Though they are like crimson, I will make you white as wool. We are supposed to see him and not ourselves. To put it simply, the longer we look into the scriptures, the more we should be looking up at God and not down on us. And nowhere is this mirror moment so important as in the area of love this critical component to our faith. We must know what love is. And and, and before we can ever address our impotence, our inability to love like Jesus loves, we must first recognize that there is only one who can live up to this standard that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Put put that that list back up on the, the screen for just a moment if we could. None of us can do this. None of us, none of us can be patient, kind all the time, not boastful, not rude, not, none of us can, we'll never live up to this standard. But as you stare into that mirror, let me read you one more scripture. This will not come up on the screen, but look at that list as we read this. First John four, all who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love, for God is love. Notice that last line. God is love. It does not say that God can love. It does not say that God does love. It says that God is love. Love is not an aspect of his character. It's not an action that he performs. Love is the essence of his identity. It is who he is is. And if you want to know what John means when he says that God is love, look no further than this list. We could just as easily remove the word love and change it out for God, and suddenly this list begins to show us what it means when scripture tells us that God is love. If God is love, then that means that God is patient and God is kind to you. Romans 2, 4. Can't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, patient God has been with you? Can't you see that it's His kindness that has led you to repentance? If God is love, then it means that God is not easily angered. He's not shaking a fist at you every single time you sin and every time you fail. If that's the image you have in your mind, you have a distorted image of the identity of your heavenly Father. He's not shaking a fist. He's waiting with arms open on the porch like the father with the prodigal son. A ring, a robe, a party in your favor. As he introduced himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. If God is love, then God is not keeping any record of your sins, any record of your failures. You might be, other people might be, but God is not. Psalm 103, he's removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. Micah seven, he has thrown your sin into the sea, never to be remembered again. And if God is love, then it means that God protects you. God trusts, God hopes. And God endures in every circumstance. His love never fails, meaning that even when you don't have the capacity to love him in like kind, that he still loves you the same. And if that feels like a a list too good to be true, a love too good to be true, then I appeal to you, go back to the mirror of your Bible and read the stories of men and women who have encountered this kind of love, story after story after story, individual after individual after individual, proving that this is how God loves. When David failed, when he committed adultery and murdered Uriah the Hittite, God still loved him, called him a man after his own heart. When Jacob deceived his brother and his father and had to run away to his uncle's house, God still chased him down and loved him. In fact, he gave him a new name, Israel, made him the father of the nation. When that nation turned their back on God over and over and over and over and over again, embraced the wickedness of the cultures around them, the perversion of the cities they were supposed to destroy, God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Story after story after story, proving this is how God loves. There's no failure too great for him to walk in and still love you the same. But as I think about this chapter, there is one story in scripture that I just cannot help but, but be drawn to. It's a story of Peter. You guys probably know it. The guy who denied Christ three times in the garden to a little girl before Jesus was crucified. If God was keeping a record of wrongs, I'm pretty sure that one's at the top of the list. Denying the Messiah in his moment of, of need But but I love the scene that the Apostle John paints for us at the conclusion of his gospel with Peter. Having denied Christ, he's back on the the boat with his buddies, fishing as he was before he ever met Jesus. And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes to the shores, and he calls out to Peter and the others on the boat. And when Peter recognizes that it's Jesus on the shore, he jumps into the water, clothes and all, and swims his way to the shore. And when he meets Jesus on the shore, Jesus is not ready to to give it to him, to reprimand him, to be angry as a result of his rejection. No, he's got got breakfast waiting for him, a meal. And and after they eat together, there's this beautifully restorative conversation that takes place. Jesus looks at, at Peter and he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter looks back at Jesus and he says, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus asks a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter looks back again. He says, Lord, you know I I love you. And then a third time, in an effort to prove that he is wiping away the three denials of Peter, he asks again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter looks back at Jesus and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, face value, you might ask, well, what does that have to do with 1 Corinthians 13? Well, in the English, it's hard to see, but when you dig into the original text, it becomes a bit clearer how this has everything to do with that kind of love. In the Greek language, there are four different words used for love. English is a bit primitive. We have one word that we use to describe a myriad of emotions. You can love your spouse. You can love your favorite sports team. You can love a restaurant. You use the same word to describe all of those emotions, even though you don't mean the same thing. Hopefully, you don't mean the same thing. If you do, you should seek some therapy. That's, that's right. But the Greek is a bit more comprehensive. It has four different words used to describe different levels of love or, or relationships. Uh, they are the words phileo, storge, eros, and agape. Uh, the word phileo it, it, it is a friendship kind of love, a love that you might have with a lifetime kind of friend. It's the Randy Newman, uh, you got a friend in me, like that kind of love. <laughs> that was pretty good, actually. <laughs> uh, the second one, storge, it speaks to a familial kind of love. It's the love between a parent and a child or, or siblings. It's the we are a family. Yes, there's a song for every one of these. The third is eros, and it's the romantic, the sexual kind of love. It's the uh, kind of love, the uh, the boys to men. <laughs> a- yeah, okay, you know, you know the yeah. But but then there is agape, and agape is this First Corinthians 13 kind of love, the patient, kind keeps no record of wrong, always trusts, always hopes, always endures kind of love. The love we were singing about just a few moments ago. The overwhelming, never ending, reckless kind of God that chases you down and fights until you're found. The unconditional, unmerited, illogical kind of love. The love that does not make any sense. And as Jesus speaks to Peter, it is this kind of love that's brought into question when he looks at this failed disciple who's denied him three times, he says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love? And because Peter knows he can't lie to the omniscient Jesus, Jesus knows everything. He can't be dishonest. He kind of hangs his head and he says, Lord, you know that I phileo, you. I wish I could say I agape you, but you know what I just did. You know how I failed. I love you like a friend. So a second time, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, do you agape me, Peter? And Peter looks back a second time and in honesty once again, he says, Lord, I I phileo you. But then this third time, Jesus changes the script. You can almost see the smile on his face as he asks us. He says, hey, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me like a friend? Even after all I've done for you? Even after I just gave my life? Even after I stood here on the shore waiting to restore you? Is that what we've got, a phileo kind of love? And Peter responds back, Lord, you know all things. You know that I am Phileo you. Now if this was a human conversation, it would be at this moment that Jesus turns and walks away and says, that's it, I gave you a love that you cannot reciprocate, I'm out. But that is not what Jesus does. It's not what Jesus does for Peter and it's not what Jesus does for you. He continues to engage in the conversation and proves that his love spans beyond Peter's ability to love him in like kind. He says, I will love you even though you don't love me the same way in return. If that does not describe the reckless nature of God's love, I don't know what does a love that will meet in denial, a love that will meet in failure, a love that still extends even though there is unreciprocated affection, a love that never fails regardless of how much you love in return. And it's not just for Peter. It's for you and it's for me. His love extends in every single season. The good news of the gospel, we've been talking about it, the answer for the last 12 weeks. It's that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and he proved his great love for us that while we were still sinners, he came and he died for us. In failure or in success, his love remains the same even when you don't have the capacity to love and like kind, you don't merit this kind of love, he says, I still agape you. I will go up any mountain, I'll break through any door, I'll tear down whatever I have to tear down to get to you because you mean more to me than your ability to reciprocate this kind of love. And lest it feel like I'm quoting way too many song lyrics and not enough Bible Romans chapter eight, for I am convinced that nothing will separate me from the love of God, neither height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, Nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation can separate me from the love of Jesus that is found in Christ Jesus, oh Lord. God loves you because it's who He is, He can't help Himself, it's the very essence of His identity. And it would be at this point in most preachers' sermons where we'd conclude and we'd call up the band and we'd sing Reckless Love again and we'd wipe our tears like, God loves me, I just feel so loved. (laughs) And we might do that, we'll see. (laughs) But I got six minutes left, so I'm gonna use them, no. I don't think we can conclude yet because ultimately, while that is the primary purpose of this chapter It's not the whole purpose of the chapter. There is yet a secondary application that we need to be aware of. Yes, we are supposed to see that only God can measure up to this standard of love. But subsequently, we need to understand that once we have received this kind of love, we now have a responsibility to distribute this kind of love to our world. Having gotten it, we gotta give it. Remember that scripture in 1 John chapter 4, where we read earlier, God is love. We'll we'll look at how the rest of that portion of scripture reads. And as I go to this, I will invite the worship team to come so that we can prepare to conclude. But look at what John says. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus. We live like Jesus. We love like Jesus here in this world. We love each other because he first loved us. Karaja, will you keep that on the screen for just a moment? I want you to see this. He says, as you live in God, as you experience this agape love, as you experience God's kindness and his patience and his unwillingness to hold your wrongs against you, as you, as you experience this kind of love, your love grows more, more perfect. It develops. You begin to recognize that the way you loved is a lot different than the way God loved you. But as you continue to live in his love, something begins to develop on the inside of you that resonates with, that begins to line up with the love that you have received. And as you live in that love, you begin to live more like Jesus here on earth. You begin to extend what has been given to you. You receive it, and so you begin to distribute it. This is why the Apostle Paul uses very intentional language at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, If I give all I possess to the poor, but I have not loved. Paul recognizes you cannot give something you do not possess. But having received it, now that I have it, I can extend it to other people. To borrow the words of Jesus, freely you have received, freely you must give. So that tells me something, doesn't it? It tells me that If I look at my life, if I'm gazing into this mirror of 1 Corinthians 13 and I recognize a disparity, if I recognize that I've been impatient or unkind or I've kept records of people's wrongs or my love has not endured through every circumstance, I tapped out too fast, I quit on the marriage early, I'm not loving people and loving the world like Jesus has loved me, it does not tell me that I gotta try harder to love better. All right, I'm gonna muster it, I'm gonna be a better husband, I'm gonna be a better father, I'm gonna be a better servant at the church, I'm I'm gonna make myself better. You can't do that. You can't fix you and I can't fix me. But if I see that I'm not loving as I should, it means I need to take a moment to look beyond the mirror. I need to once again encounter the love of Jesus afresh. I need to recognize once again how my loving God has loved me because only after I have received his love can I begin to extend that love to other people. I know this is simple, but let me just say this. The to-do for some of us this morning, we just need to encounter Jesus again. We need a fresh revelation of the love of our heavenly Father so that we can love like Jesus loves. And so to that end, here's how I wanna conclude today. I I wanna pray over us, but I wanna pray a prayer that these are not my words, these are the words of of the Apostle Paul to a different church in Ephesus, but I want you to receive this as as we conclude and you can bow your heads, you can look at it on the screen, whatever you prefer, but here's the prayer. Paul says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the ability, the capacity, to comprehend as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is for you. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Jesus, may we experience this kind of love today. Lord, we recognize that we have been unable to love like you've asked us to. But even on our best day, we can never figure that one out on our own. We must experience before we can distribute. I pray right now for anyone in the room who has been walking with you for a while, but has forgotten about some of those attributes of who you are, that you are the God that is patient with them. You're not angry and rushing them along, but you're patient with them in their process. You are the God that is kind, not judgmental, not shaking a fist, but wrapping your arms around them even in failure. You're the God that removes shame, the God that took our guilt upon himself. You're not keeping a record of any of our wrongs. We should not feel as we come to prayer that we have to apologize for things over and over and over and over again, as if we rehearse our own record of wrongs, because that's not what you're doing. Lord, maybe experience your love afresh today. And and as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm gonna take this moment and just, once again, look at a line from this prayer that Paul offers. He says, God will empower you with this inner strength through His Spirit as Christ makes His home in your hearts. Maybe today, as we talk about this love, you might have a heart that isn't being occupied by the Father. And today, if you're far from Jesus and you know that you need to to invite him back into your life, I wanna pray a prayer of commitment with you. As I said earlier, the beauty of, of your God is that he's waiting for this moment. His arms are opened. He's not looking for you to grovel, to come as a plebeian, but just to come boldly wrapped up in his arms as he loves you. If that's you this morning and you need to make things right with Jesus, I wanna pray with you right now, but as we pray, if that's, if that's the Holy Spirit talking to you, will you just wave your hand at me real quick so that I know who I'm praying with today as we make this commitment? Thank you, got you, miss. Yeah, right on bro, got you. Cool. All right, here's what we're gonna do. Everyone pray this prayer along with me this morning. We say, Jesus, today I give you my life. Thank you for giving yours for mine. I thank you for your love. Forgive me of my sin and help me to be your disciple. I wanna follow you all the days of my life until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, come on, amen, 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 amen. thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.